0: 8 nine, the following program is sponsored by the national prayer chapel today's sermon is pre-recorded
1: They're words you pick up as a christian and you use without really realizing that you don't know what it means and christians go years decades sometimes and they don't know what a word means but boy it sounds good and we use it and we all we all hear it and we go uh-huh yeah right but when somebody pins you down, it's like, I, I don't know what that means. I want to share with you what to many people is a four-letter word Okay, when it comes to the things of God. And that, that four-letter word is Lord. Right? That's a term that we use, and nobody tells us at the beginning what it means, what the significance is, how it affects us. Turn with me to Matthew 7. We will start there. Matthew 7. Matthew 7 will go to... Well, you know what? Let's back up. I wasn't going to include this, but let's back up to verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, and here's our four-letter word twice, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Many, just there's another four letter word, but it's at least in English, but it'll it'll blow your mind if you think about what he's about to say. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you who practice lawlessness. Now, in your translation, it may say practice iniquity or do iniquity or something. That word iniquity is another one of those ones that we throw around. We're not really certain what it means, but I think it sort of means the same thing as sin. Uh-uh. It's kind of the, the root of sin insofar as it translates a Greek word anomia. Now, we know the, the, the root namas because we get it in nomenclature. We get it in... Uh, things like, um, I'm trying to think of the political word that we use. But um, anyway, it's it's the root for law. And you'll hear it in the word Deuteronomy, and you hear the Nama, the, that's the retelling of the law. God gives the law to Moses in, in Exodus 2, and then he reiterates it. He does the law again. Deuteros means again, over again. Deuteros Namas. He gives the law again, just so everybody's afresh with it. All right, so anomia means without law, not subject to the law, not having anything to do with, you know, it's like there's a law, but it doesn't touch me. You know, it's like the people who say, yeah, there's a speed limit, I believe in law, but but the, the speed limit doesn't apply to me. I acknowledge it's the law. Okay, this, that, and the other thing are true, but it doesn't apply to me. Now, if you if you pin them down, they say, Well, yeah, it does, but in their practice, it doesn't. Okay? So many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, and then look what goes on here. They they prophesied. They did they did miracles, they did all these wonderful things. They did it all in the name of Jesus. And Jesus says to them. Take a hike eternally. I never knew you. We'll get to what that means in a minute. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. We're at an extreme disadvantage. We start off with an extreme disadvantage spiritually because we live in America. What? Yeah, that's exactly right. An extreme disadvantage for the very thing that is a blessing to us, our liberty, our ability to to make choices, our ability to, uh, to, to vote people in and vote people out, to vote in referendum and so forth. The kingdom of God, surprise, is basically embodied in a person. It's in a king. And long ago when we told Prince George III and his redcoats to take a hike, what we said is we don't want to be subject to a king. We don't want to be subject to, in this case, a parliament that tells us what to do. We want to be independent. Well, that's turned out to be a pretty good thing. But it's a really miserable example when it comes to understanding the kingdom of God. And we've got to kind of shift out of that mindset. And that's something that God has to help us with. Because you see, in, in my own little kingdom or in my own little democracy, I can kind of bargain with God. You know, I can say, well, look, uh, you do this, I'll do that. we'll, you know, we'll, we'll see that there's a vote and we'll see who's the tiebreaker. Um, and if, if I lose, I'm still going to do what I want to do. Okay. But in a kingdom, the king is the lawgiver. The king is the executive branch. So he's the legislature. He's... He's the executive branch, and he's the judiciary. All those functions come under his domain. Now, to give all that power to a man, we found out from history, the hard way, over and over again for thousands of years, not really the best idea. You may get one good king who functions pretty well in that way, and then his son or his heir, his successor, just, just destroys the whole thing. But here, when Jesus says, go out and preach the kingdom of God, when or it, Matthew will use the phrase kingdom of heaven. That's not something different, and it's not talking about heaven as opposed to earth. Matthew is a Jew writing to a Jewish audience. And if you know any Jewish people, you'll know that one of the things that they do to our confusion a little bit, they will take the third commandment, I think it's the third, that you shall not take the name of Yahweh or Jehovah, your God, in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. And it began to be a point where they wouldn't pronounce the name of God, and sometimes they've gone so far as to leave out the word God, and they will just say Hashem, the name. Or instead of saying God bless you, they'll say heaven bless you. You remember from uh from Fiddler on the Roof they they they're sort of having the party at the bar and the gentiles come in and and one of the things that the gentiles say heaven bless you well I thought that was a nice thing for a gentile to say because this is a Russian Orthodox guy coming in but he's sensitive to the the Jewish sensitivities and so he says heaven bless you All right so Matthew in writing to his Jewish contemporaries will always call it the kingdom of heaven, not because it's something different from the kingdom of God, just because that's what his audience would expect. That's what his audience, uh, you know, it, it won't jar their ears. It won't break up their, their sensibilities. Um, Matthew does a lot of things like that. He starts off his, uh, his, his gospel with a genealogy. For a Gentile, it's like, How boring is that? You know, we're used to movies and stories where, you know, the very first page or the very first few frames of film, things blow up or somebody gets murdered or there's a car chase, you know, and whoa, what's going on? Matthew starts with a genealogy and you think, okay, let me know when it's over. You ever looked at that genealogy? I know this is off to the side. You ever looked at that genealogy? How does he break it up by numbers? Three groups of 14. Did you ever notice that there's not 14 in the last group? Did you ever count it? Did you ever sit down? And the rule is you can't count anybody more than once. And nobody can be in two groups. Okay, those are the rules. So if you're in one group of 14, you can't be in another group of 14. You count through the first group, there's 14. You count through the second group, there's 14. You count through the third group, and there's only 13. And a Jew would say, wait, Matthew, stop. Stop, stop. You said 14. There's 13. I mean, they, they were tuned into this kind of stuff. And Matthew says, yes, yes, there's 14. Count it again. So you go through and you count. Yeah. No, there's only 13. Count it again. Well, the only way it works out to 13, uh, to 14, is if you count this woman, Mary. And Matthew says, That's right. Well, you can't count her in a genealogy. And Matthew says, Well. This is a unique genealogy. How can I explain this to you? Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. That's the very next verse after the, after the, the uh, genealogy. He's saying, this is so different that I had to count the genealogy this way because if you don't count Mary, there's no Jesus. Yeah. Okay? So yeah, count that through sometimes. You'll see it only works if you include Mary in the countdown. Jesus in the New Testament, is all about breaking down everything that there is against woman. It started in the garden. Even Paul, who everybody said, oh, well, you know, Paul says, me, Tarzan, you doormat. (laughs) Okay? Well, first of all, that whole passage, wives submit, husbands love, taken out of context, Go back one verse, just just one verse before wives submit. If it's better than mine, can I have it known? <laughs> okay. If you go back just one verse, it says submitting to one another, everybody to everybody else in the fear of Christ. And then it lists six different examples of submitting to one another. And the reason we miss the six is because some fool—I'm sure he wasn't a fool, but it wasn't a very wise thing to do there puts in an end of chapter and says, ah, now we go on to chapter six. No, 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 no. Everybody submit to everybody else in the fear of God. Wives submit. Husbands submit. You see, he doesn't say that. Oh, hey, if you start to live out, love your wife as Christ loved the church, there'll be plenty of submission. Then it's children submit, fathers submit, bosses submit, employees submit, or masters and slaves. There are six different examples. We miss it because of the chapter break. Okay, but then if you go back just a few more verses in the context, here's the context. Be being filled with the Spirit. Be in a state of being continually filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And then comes submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And then the six examples, Wives submit, husbands submit, children submit, fathers submit. Two children. Whoever oh, heard of such a thing? Masters submit, slaves submit, employers submit, employees submit. Work it out. It only works when you're in that state of being filled continually. I've got a river of life. Remember that if you're in that river of life and you're there, then out of love you can say, I'd be happy to submit. I don't care. Wife, husband, mom, dad, it doesn't matter. I'm full of the Spirit. One of the most shameful things in the Gospels, it even went on at the Last Supper. I can't believe it. When I saw it there, I thought, I want to say you dunderheads to, to the apostles, but I probably would have been one of the ones participating. They're always trying to figure out who's going to be the greatest when Jesus comes into his kingdom. You know, Can I sit at your right hand? Can I sit at your left hand? They even set mom up to go ask. Did you know that? And, and this was especially dirty pool because if you know who that woman is, she's mary's sister so these are the cousins sending auntie salome to say you know can your cousins sit on your right hand and your left hand i don't know if you knew that but they're but they're related by blood all right and they're still talking about it at the last supper less than 24 hours before he's going to be crucified who's going to be the greatest and then the other guys find out and they're mad they're mad because they asked, and they're mad because they didn't ask before the other guys. You know, pretty certain that's how that works. Okay. Then comes the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2. And one of the glories about reading through the Scripture over and over and over again, like I was talking about on Friday on the radio, uh, is that you begin to notice not just what's there, but what's not there. And one of the things that's not there is you never, ever hear any of those apostles ever arguing about who's greatest. In fact, you know who winds up running the church on a day-to-day basis in in Jerusalem? Not one of them. Jesus' half-brother winds up running the show. None of them do, and they don't care because they're full of the Spirit, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. It's wonderful. Okay? Okay, that's two asides. We may actually get to the subject before we're through this thing about lordship. When you say, Lord, this goes right along with what was being said in the offertory. When you say, Lord, you're saying everything I own, everything I am, everything I have is subject to your immediate command. If you say, jump, I jump. If you say, go, I go. If you say, give, I give. Help me to, be, to walk in that obedience. You cease to be an independent voting member, so to speak. That's not your relationship anymore. Your relationship is to a sovereign, perfect, loving king. And most, people, most Christians never get past that point. It's like, yeah, he's king, but no, there's no but. If there's a but in the statement, then Jesus still isn't Lord. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, he says in Luke, and don't do what I say? This is amazing stuff here. Many will say to me in that day, see, he's not talking about non-Christians. And I put Christians in quote because I'm not even certain I know what the term means anymore. You know, I hear this term used and it's like, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, I asked Jesus into my heart. Uh okay, so are you obeying him? Well, uh, uh, well, uh, you know how that that whole thing goes. This comes partly by surrender, and it comes partly by revelation. Okay, turn to First Corinthians chapter twelve, the whole chapter about spiritual gifts. Actually. 12 through 14 is all about spiritual gifts. Here's a little comment that Paul makes almost as an aside on the way to getting to explain these supernatural gifts of the Spirit that come with the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And I hope those of you who are new in Christ will hear me out on this. Seek God to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because as big of a change as your salvation was, as much of, a, of an altering of your view of the universe it was when you got saved, it will be the same kind of a quantum leap when you get filled with the Holy Spirit. I remember once I got filled with the Holy Spirit, and I didn't know what it was. It was one of those phrases where I heard people talking about baptism of the Holy Spirit. You know, just, just It was in the buzz of people talking and people preaching and teaching. And nobody ever sat down and said, Okay, do you know what this is? Here's what this is. So I'm going along, and our youth group, because I got saved, and if you can believe this, a spirit-filled Lutheran youth group. I mean, where they spoke in tongues and prophesied, and this is a crazy group. Uh, We, because I became one of them ultimately, we took over our high school 69, 70 year when most of these people were seniors, I was one of them. We owned the school for Jesus. I don't say that out of pride. I just look back and go, whoa, what a thing God did. The president of the student body, the president of the the senior class, the editor of the school newspaper, seven of the top GPAs in this in the graduating class, the. The, uh, one of the uh, valedictorians, and had there not been two valedictorians, the woman who would have been salutatorian, they were all outspoken, bold Christians. We owned the campus. We didn't know that we owned it. All we knew was, praise Jesus, we get to share the gospel and, and God's doing things and people are coming to meetings and this is wonderful stuff. But it was a sovereign work. And I'll tell you what happened Every one of those kids was sold out to Jesus. And they read the scriptures. And you know what? If if the scriptures said you pray for the sick and God will heal them, they said, okay. So they'd go and pray for the sick and, and God would heal them. And it's like, yeah, thank you, Lord. But it wasn't like, oh, that's amazing. It was just like, yeah, that's what the Bible says. Okay, well, now what do we do? Four or five years after I graduated from there and was pastoring a church, the new pastor of the youth group came to me and he said, you know, what we've got going here isn't anything like what what was going on when you were here. Would you come and speak to our group? Could you come and kind of, I don't know, take our temperature, tell me what's, what's wrong? And so I said, okay, I'll come and share if... You let me come a week early, just sit in the back, and don't tell anybody I'm the speaker the next week because I don't want to. I don't want to prejudice anything that goes on. I just want to be a little fly on the wall. He said, "Okay, I'll do that." So I went to the meeting uh, the, the week before, and I know that we have digital film now. You can see immediately, you know, whatever you've taken. and and blow it up on your tablet if you need to. But back then, it was a really big thing to have 24-hour developing of your film, okay? Well, even today, it sometimes takes the Lord 24 hours to develop my film. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll see something, and it's like, there's something there, and it's kind of like waiting for a spiritual Polaroid, you know? Am I, am I talking Greek when I say Polaroid? You know, those little cameras where you take it and, and the paper slides out and it looks blank, you know, but you wait and you wait and you wait and, and finally a, a picture just kind of magically appears, you know, and you go, oh. Hey, it was really effective in, in um, missionary evangelism. Her dad used to use one of those out in Africa, you know, and he'd go and take a picture of the chief and only the chief got his picture taken, but it, it opened doors. Anyway, so... My film develops, and I come back the next week, and I think actually what I preached on was the Lordship of Jesus. Now that I think about it, I haven't thought about it. But I, I talked to the youth group later. I said, now I know what the problem is. I said, what is it, what is it, what is it? I said, you were trying to relate to the kids. And you're, you, they are living down to your spiritual expectations. Unbeknownst to us, this was the expectation you know so that was the expectation we lived up to it hey if that's what jesus wants me to do i'd be glad to do it you know i didn't know there was some other way to do it when when somebody would stand up in, in in one of our youth group meetings and say you know the lord spoke to me and said this and such and so and so nobody said oh that person's weird or wow god speaks to that person it was like oh just like he did to me last week you know, it, it was normal you know because it was normal in the book. I remember about a, four weeks, after, less than that, after I graduated from high school, the Lord opened a door for me to go teach uh, and share and get people baptized in the Holy Spirit in Dallas, Texas. And I went to kind of our a sister youth group out there. And they were out on a, you know, sort of a, a, a lake outing, you know, sports and swimming and all the rest of that. And then they all gathered. And, and the youth group leader, who was a, a minister uh, attending Dallas Theological Seminary, he said, "Okay, uh, just share." So I just shared how God had provided for me to take this trip and how He'd provided for my gas and the different things that had happened on the way and just just various things that the Lord had spoken that came true. And uh, so the youth group leader said, "Okay, okay, are there any questions?" And finally, one girl raised her hand. And you ever been in one of those situations where one person speaks? And as soon as they do, you can see that everybody else in the group is so going, mm-hmm. So she said, uh, excuse me, um, what do you mean Jesus spoke to you? And I didn't know how to answer her, especially when I saw everybody kind of doing this. Yeah, what was he talking about? Because where I came from, that was normal. You know, that was just not a big deal. You pray, the Lord puts something in your heart. He, he speaks something to your heart, and you go and do it, or you act by it. And for them, it was like, what kind of a weird guy is this? It was my first encounter with the possibility that there were Christians who didn't hear God. I'd been cocooned in this group for almost two years. It's like, wow, this is great. And then to go out into the wide world and go, wow, that's, that seems to be the exception, not the rule. A lot of it comes down to lordship. See, because if God keeps telling you to do something and you don't do it, the scary part isn't that he starts shouting louder and louder. The scary part is he starts talking softer and softer. You will find this. Now, if you're, if you're genuinely seeking God's will, and, and for many of us, this is brand new territory, okay? God is if he sees your heart, if he sees you're trying, he'll go out of his way to make his will clear. And he will shout louder if he needs to, not because he's angry, just because he's trying to help you. Okay, But after you've sort of been established in the Lord for a while, if you're not listening, it becomes harder to hear and harder to hear because it's like she's not really interested He's not really interested. Let's see. You know, sometimes though, you ever been in a group of kids and they're kind of rowdy? And some teachers will come in and take charge. You know, just and some of the teachers will sit there and begin to talk very softly. And first the couple kids next to her sort of turn around and they get quiet. And then the kids next to them turn around and get quiet and they're trying, what, you know, what's going on? What's going on? And she has the whole room at her command. Not because she got loud, but because she got quiet. God's trying to get your attention. So anyhow, this verse here in First Corinthians. Now concerning the spiritual, spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant. I'm sorry, 12 1 in First 1 Corinthians. We turned there a while ago and then... Uh, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed or anathema, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And we usually skip right over that part and just keep going on into the gifts because, hey, it's cool, you know, to be able to prophesy and have healing and miracles and tongues and interpretation of tongues, and all of that's good, all of that's valid, all of it's wonderful. But This little revelation, so critical. Nobody can call Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that the word can't come out of your mouth because we saw when we started there in Matthew 7. Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and do all of this stuff? The word comes easily. The spiritual reality and condition of being completely submitted to a sovereign king you have to choose it, but it also has to come by this revelation from the Holy Spirit. No man can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. I would argue, and I think so would Paul and so would Peter. Turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 10. We'll have to flip back just a couple of verse, uh, pages. Passage you know well, passage you've quoted to yourself and to others, um, We'll start verse eight. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. If you confess with your mouth, what? Jesus says, Savior. Jesus says, buddy. No. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. There's the faith, but there's there's this acknowledging of what my relationship is and must be. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is king. He owns me lock, stock, and barrel. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead. What does it say? What's you the next part? You will be saved. Oh, I thought it was just if I believed in my heart. I thought if it was just I, I said the sinner's prayer. By the way, I don't have time to go into this. So I probably shouldn't bring it up, but I'll just bounce it off you and make you feel miserable while you search it out. There is no sinner's prayer in the New Testament. Nobody ever prayed the sinner's prayer of Revelation 3.20. You know why? Because Revelation was the last book in the New Testament written. And that sinner's prayer was a sinner's prayer commanded to Christians, you know. Okay, not to non-believers. Okay. As many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. I discipline you. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door. Now, he's talking to Christians. And that... Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That motif through Scripture is always indicative of pending judgment. Change or be destroyed. Okay? So uh, I'll just, just throw that out there. But here, if you confess with your mouth, by revelation, Jesus is Lord. He's my King. He owns me. And believe in your heart, God's raised from the dead. You shall be saved for... uh. The scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed or ashamed. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord, he keeps coming back to that, not Savior, the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him for, and then he quotes from Joel, the prophet, chapter two, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now again, it's not just a word, okay, it's not just a word that you say. It is the reality of the situation. You know, I don't recall making a conscious decision about that, but I, I saw the contrast very quickly. Okay. The night I got saved was July 31st, 1968, Newport Beach, California, St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church. I wasn't a member there. I just happened to have visited the youth group once. I went back twice, and the Lord trapped me. Wonderfully, gloriously saved me. And uh, at that time, with my part-time income, I had been saving up money because there was this sports coat that I wanted to buy. Many times smaller than this one, but it was, but it was a nice gold one. And it cost $60. I remember J.C. And I really wanted this sports coat. Now, there was another girl who went through the, went through the motions that night, prayed the sinner's prayer, uh, with me. <laughs> She's trained her that way, so that dad has to do some of the work. See, the, you're, you're seeing a manifestation of wisdom here. So. <laughs> All right. You know what? In one way, this is one of the most normal kinds of church meetings. Is this is the kind of church meetings they had in the New Testament. You couldn't scoop the kids off to children's church. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. That's kind of meeting. I mean, the kind of meetings I teach in sometimes in Latin America, the kids are there, the dogs are wandering in, the chickens wander in. Okay, you know, that's okay. I mean, this is real life. Having kids here is real life. Having them hear the word of the Lord and sing the hymns of the faith, that's not a bad thing. But part of the reason I shared the children's sermon today is because when I was little, I used to think, you know, I don't understand most of what Reverend Poff or whoever it was that used to be our minister said. I wish there could be a, a little message for kids so that I could understand what's going on. So I kind of made a promise that when I was teaching and people were around, I would realize that you and you and you were part of my congregation and teach on that level. So so there. And don't chuck your thumb. What was okay.
0: Samuel's
1: name? <laughs> <No>. Shmuel. Okay, <laughs> oh, <yeah>. good. <laughs> okay, so... All right, so this thing about lordship anyway so i've got this money i've almost got it saved up for this coat and this this girl uh beth who uh we had been going to the same youth group so we had occasion to call and um i was hoping that she would be interested in me you know because kind of hot good looking you know you see a girl like that you you gain some i'm just telling you you know but we were talking and i was telling her about the the, the coat and and uh I said, I don't know if I can buy the coat. And she said, why not? You've been saving up for it for months. I said, I don't know if the Lord wants me to have it or not. I don't know if that's what I'm supposed to spend my money on. And here was where I found out where she was really at. And it it proved true for her spiritual future. She said, wow, you're really into this thing now, aren't you? You You're like you care what God thinks about you buying a, a sports coat? Yeah, yeah, I do. Because I want to please him. And that was when I realized, wow, that can be a real difference. You know, two people can pray the same prayer. And for one, it's absolutely, utterly life-changing and real. And for the other one, it's like, eh, you know, whatever. That was nice. This matter of Jesus being Lord... It starts out at salvation. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Again, not the words. It's like, I understand what this relationship is going to cost me, but only after I understand what the relationship has cost him. You know, we're always thinking, well, you know, it's going to cost me so much to be a Christian. I'm going to have to tithe, and I'm going to have to do all this stuff. Okay, you've already missed the, the, the whole boat. You've already missed the whole reason why you're involved in this. When you see him, as he reveals himself as Lord, you know, he never comes in both barrels blazing. And well, I won't say never because you should never say never about the Lord. There are two spiritual principles I have learned that about the only true ones I know. And number one is God will never submit Himself to any man's law or rule or principle or, or way of doing things. And rule number two is this: rule number one doesn't always apply, because He's God; He can do whatever He wants, whenever He wants. Okay, so I won't say absolutely He won't come in with guns blazing, but usually when He reveals Himself, both as King and Savior, you get a sense for what it is he's done for you. I can trust this person implicitly because he loves me enough to die for me. And I trust his authority. I trust his, his nurture. I trust his provision. Yes, he's Lord. Now, sometimes it takes, you know, there's certain matters where tithing's a good example. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And your heart is really tied, for many people, to that wallet. Uh, And usually, either one of the first or one of the last challenges comes in this area of finances. And this isn't because it's an offertory. It's just because it's an example. All that money is mine. Yes, Lord, it is. Everything I have is yours. So I want you to give 10% of every paycheck. And as soon as you start with a but, you're always you're, you're always wrong. Okay, <laughs> you're just wrong. You never say but to the king. And I remember once I hardly ever. have ta- Denise can tell you in in forty plus years of ministry, I think I've only taught on tithing and giving maybe three or four times. I don't like the subject. I mean, in our first church, we had a box, nicely made box, uh, uh, special for people to put their offerings, and we never told people to tithe we never told people to give offerings i'm not saying it's uh, that's the only way to do it. i'm just saying that's how we did it in fact people would come to church and they'd be there for about four weeks and funny, they'd grab somebody and say please tell me how do i give my tithe uh, it's just you know, just put it in the box over there okay all right so that's just what i came from because i you know that's i suppose that's part of the challenges of our of our missions ministry is like i just have the hardest time saying you know we need money to carry on here. We've got to eat. We've got to pay for plane tickets. I just, it's hard for me to do. But I was teaching one of the few times I've ever taught on this. I was just, just going for it. And I began to teach. And then the Lord sort of gave me all the excuses why people had not to tithe. You know? And I did not know this. There was a new Christian, a, a teacher, big guy. I mean, if he would decided to take me apart, he could have done so real easily. Um, his name is Todd. And he's been following Jesus ever since. And it's like he would say, you know, in his heart, he well, I can't do because... And then I would hit that point immediately. And so he'd go to the next point, and the Lord had... I mean, everything I had in my message, he came up with each of these excuses, and then I answered them. And finally, he's just starting to boil, you know? Uh, He's just like... You know, he's he's without excuse. And at that point, I say... And again, I don't know what's going on. And I said, if this is making you mad, I'm glad. <laughs> and he just sort of, he just sort of implodes, not explodes, but implodes on the inside. And the next week he stood up at testimony time in the Sunday morning meeting and he explained what went on. And he said, and he just went through the whole thing and he said, God got a hold of me. And here is my first tithe check. And he went over and he put it in the box, you know. But, for him, it was a matter of lordship. You can talk it all you want, but if God can't have your time when he wants it, how he wants it, if he can't have your money, how he wants it, when he wants it, then we're still only in theory. And like I said at the beginning, for many for many Christians, when you get down to it, lord is a four-letter word. I don't know about this Jesus stuff, but it's getting kind of carried away here, so... We'll draw the line. You can't draw the line. That's the whole reason. How do you get in the kingdom if you're not subject to the king? How can you be a part of the kingdom if you're not willing to let the king run the kingdom? And if you're a part of the kingdom, how can you let the king run you? I'm here because I want to be under this king. I love him, he loves me. But you won't do what he says? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, he says in Luke 46, 646, and not do what I say? Many will say to me in that name, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? You know, done many mighty works? Go away. You are practicing anomia. You are not under the the law. That is to say, you're not under my kingship. You want to do what you want to do. That's fine. You know, you have free will. You can do whatever you want. You do not have to do what God tells you to do. But always remember, in choosing what you want, there are always consequences for every choice. Go do what you want. But in the end, when there's an accounting, Don't go complaining to God. Well, but, you see, as soon as 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 the bud comes out, that's it. That's it. There was a time, and I don't even remember the specific problem. Maybe the Lord will remind me about that sometime. But anyhow, I felt the Holy Spirit speak to me and say, until we get this cleared up, you are not to call me Lord. You know how hard it is to pray without using the word Lord? You know how hard that is? Every time I go to, oh, no, he said not to do that. And, of course, every time there's that check, then you get get convicted. I can't call him Lord because I won't do this thing. I won't let this thing go. I won't stop doing this thing that he wants me to stop doing. But I tell you, it was a lesson. It it shamed me every time I went to pray. It's like, uh, Father, um, God, uh, I couldn't call him Lord because he wasn't. I would rather him challenge me then than challenge me at the judgment seat. I don't want to be part of the many who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we, you know. So as you're reading through the New Testament, as you're reading through these passages, and I trust you are. You know, we talked Friday about, uh, out on the radio program, about one of the things we do is we teach people that you just, you got to read through the scriptures. If you've never done it before, start with the New Testament. When, uh, when I'm with the pastors, you have to understand that sixth grade education, they don't do a lot of reading. Because reading is difficult huh? in Latin America. That's right. Well, maybe in the U.S. too. I don't know. Um, and so, you tell them read through the Bible cover to cover, and they're like, "Whoa! You may as well ask me to move a mountain." And so we talk about we talk about eating the elephant. Because you know? we start out with a, a little story about. Uh, there's a, a poem written by an Englishman about the blind men and the elephant. There's six blind men. They encounter an elephant, and they each feel a different part of the elephant, and they walk away just absolutely convinced that they know what an elephant's like. One thinks it's like a wall. Another one feels like it's a tree trunk. Another one feels like it's a snake. Another one feels like it's a rope. Somebody thinks it's like a big palm leaf that waves, and somebody thinks it's like a spear because he got a hold of the tusk. You know, So they all walk away going, I know what that's all about. And so I tell them that's like context in the scripture. You know, if you are just snatching this and snatching that. And you haven't seen the whole thing. You haven't seen the whole elephant. And so you come away with these weird interpretations. And then we go on and I say, okay, now how do you eat an elephant? And they look at me like. And somebody finally says, mordida, mordida. Bite by bite. Exactly right. Exactly right. And then I tell them, you know, you read through the New Testament, one chapter a day. You're done in nine months. That's it. You're through. You start again. <laughs> yeah, and then you start again, exactly. And if if you want to add the Old Testament to that, it's like maybe three, three and a half chapters a day. And that's it. That's all it takes. Average reader could probably do that in 20 minutes. Slow reader, maybe 30 minutes. I don't suggest speed reading the scriptures because what's the point? You know, to say you made it through? All right, so eating the elephant. And the more you read through, New Testament, Old Testament, what you'll find is Jesus is either Lord or he isn't. The recurring theme in, say, the book of Judges is there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And in the end, when they do get a king, God says to Samuel, Shmuel, the very guy we were talking about but when he was old, he says, don't worry about it, Samuel. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me from being king over them. So let's give them what they want. And I'll try to bless them as best I can with the best human king possible. But they pay the penalty for it over and over again. They haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me from being king over them. This thing about lordship, it's its liberating, you know? It's not like, oh man, cruel bondage, everything God, I've got to do, everything God wants me to do. Uh-uh. I don't feel like it's cruel bondage if Denise tells me to take out the garbage. Or the really cruel bondage in my household is computer problems. I love my wife dearly, but she can just walk by a computer and just things happen. <laughs> she can click just a perfectly innocent tab in a browser and it's like, how did you do that? I don't know. I was just sitting here. and Okay. So is it a cruel, unusual bondage? No, <laughs> you know, but I just do it because I love her. Well, it's been that way since the beginning. Jesus reveals himself as Lord, and you say, wow, that takes care of a whole lot of problems. My life, my future, my destiny, my job, where I'm going to go, you know, he's got it. He's got it. I might not see it, but he sees it. So let me encourage you with that four-letter word. One of those words that maybe you've been using, but you haven't really understood. Okay, Lord, absolute sovereign King, I am not into democracy. I won't sing it because I might violate some copyright. But do you remember the old Budweiser tune? I see you remember it. Okay. Uh, the Lord wants, uh, just. I was listening to that and, and I got these words. When you say Lord, okay, and it's all about what happens. And it, and it ends, when you say Lord Jesus, surrender all. So it, it goes through it. When, when you say Lord, you've given uh, up on Satan's dark, darkness and sin strife. Okay. I, don't uh, I don't know, if I remember the whole thing. When you say Lord, you've given up the right to have the last say in your life. It's no democracy. Jesus is king, you see. To you, the world's a loss. Now Jesus is the boss. When you've said, Lord Jesus, surrender all. Final thing, then I'll close. Those of you who have purchased houses, rented, you know, or or leased apartments, uh, bought houses, just entered into any kind of a business transaction requiring a, uh, a contract. One thing you learn... And if you don't, you learn it the hard way, is that every one of the blanks in that contract had better have something in it or be crossed through or be initialed before you put your signature on the bottom line. Because if it's not, somebody can go back in there and put in this special fee, this special interest amount, this, this, you know, stuff that you didn't expect because you were so naive that you didn't check the blanks. You just said, oh, yeah, I'll trust him, And you just you signed your name. All right. Well, the lordship of Jesus kind of breaks all those rules because Jesus says, okay, here's the kingdom contract. Sign here. And you say, but, but Lord, it's blank. Not only are the blanks not filled in, the whole thing is blank. And he says, uh-huh. You, you want me to sign that? Yep. And then I fill in everything else what's best for you in the perfect time. I don't say you're going to like it all on the front end, but you'll always see it from the back end and go, wow, Lord, that was amazing. Thank you for taking me through that. Thank you for, for bringing me through that difficult time. Thank you for challenging my assumptions. And in the end, you present the paperwork When you check out, contract fulfilled, and Jesus did most of the work.
0: Revivalnow.church dot church. Revival in Woodbridge. Revival dot church. Revival in Woodbridge. Revival Now dot church. Thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Come join us at NationalPrayerChapel.com or our sister website, RevivalNow dot church. We love you. God bless you. of His glory with great joy with